0: Please uh, remain standing as uh, we we read God's Word. This is from Genesis chapter 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died in Cariath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead. And said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat me, Ephron, the son of Zor, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as a property for a burying place. Now, Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham, In the hearing of the Hittites, all of who went into the gate of the city, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people in the land, and he said to Ephron, In the hearing of all the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field, accept it for me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver? What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with which the cave was in and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, and the cave that is in the field of Machpelah east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over by Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites." Please be seated as I pray. Lord, uh, we thank you for the power of your word. God, we thank you for the faith of Abraham that we see Lord, uh, we thank you uh, for your extravagant love towards us. Lord, be with Ryan this morning as he preaches. God, pray that his words would be your words, and his thoughts would be your thoughts. And pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
1: Amen. Thanks, Bill. Welcome to the club of uh, trying to read through some of these names, right? Hey, everybody Everybody gives you grace, Bill. Don't worry about that. It's good. It's good. Hey, guys, how we doing this morning? It's good to see so many people in the second service. This is great. This is, this is what I'm expecting moving forward. It's awesome. You know, I, lo- I love Genesis 23 because I would never, if you, if you said, hey, pick any sermon you could preach, you know, any, any text, I would not pick Genesis 23. The reason I love expositional preaching and I just feel called to it is because it binds me to God's word in such a way where I've got to trust God for the message for these people that are in front of me today. Um, it's way harder for me to preach a topical sermon because I just preach Ephesians 2 every single time. So um, uh, anyway, uh, yeah, we're going to dig in together today. So as you heard this, you're probably thinking, okay, there is a funeral um, of Abraham's wife, Sarah, and then there's an extended real estate deal with too many details. It's probably what you're thinking about when you hear it. It's it's a little bit of what's going on. Uh, I'm not going to say that Moses shared too much, but... um, so I, but this is, a, this is a chapter about closure for Abraham. It's a chapter uh, that is recounting the ways of God's faithfulness. There, there, might, be, there might be more in what's uh, not said than we could ever imagine as we think about this. Um, and so I just want to recap a little bit of Abraham's story as uh, his, life on, his wife's life on this earth comes to a close. Abraham and Sarah, they left the land of Ur. They were pagans. They followed these moon gods. They weren't looking for God when God found them. They left that land 62 years ago from this moment that's being described here. Sarah was 65 and Abraham was 75. And God called them out of the land of Ur into the land that he would show them. And so they they, they followed God's voice. They found themselves... Uh, around the same place that Abraham is today, and um, eventually. And, um, and then circumstances got really hard after they started following God. Because we said that, you know, when, after God calls you, things usually get worse before they get better, and sometimes they continue to get worse. And that's why we need faith, right? And so after this, a famine comes on the land. Abraham, uh, his faith kind of fails him to some degree. He goes down to Egypt. Uh, God meets him in Egypt, though, right? You remember that? He's running, he's running, trying to figure out things on his own, but God meets him there. God meets him there and blesses him, even though he's been disobedient. Actually punishes the Pharaoh instead. And uh, they leave from that place. Uh, his nephew Lot's with them. He's kind of a surrogate father to his nephew. And they leave with a lot of possessions and a lot of people as they head back up to uh, around the promised land that God would eventually give uh, his people and in that place, they have to separate, right? And Lot goes, he chooses the land that looks better. And he says he chooses that land, it's around Sodom and Gomorrah. He chooses that land uh, that's to the south because it looked like Egypt. Do you remember that phrase? And we said Egypt always represents, at least in the Bible, bondage and self-sufficiency, which, thing, which are things that lead you from God. And so we see how Lot's heart is just turned well, then things get worse. Kedlamar and all of these guys, all these other kings, these five kings, they come and they, they take over all of these cities. And they take Lot, Abraham's nephew, with them. And, and they take him north of where Abraham is. Abraham rallies 318 men. I love how the Bible gives you that number, but you can't forget it. 318 men to go rescue Lot, to go capture him from all of these kings that have taken him. And, and Abraham and his men, they do just that, and they bring him back. And then Lot goes back down to Sodom after that, where his heart is the whole time. During this time, Abraham and Sarah, they're, they're waffly in their faith too, aren't they? Um, they still haven't had a kid. They're getting up there in age, 80s, 90s. These years have passed by. And so uh, they, they devise another plan of their own, kind of an Egypt-style plan, taking an Egyptian servant, Hagar. And, uh, and Hagar becomes Abraham's wife, and they have a son together. At Sarah's request, and that son's name is Ishmael. Um, Ishmael, uh, God and uh, God uh, blesses and meets Hagar and Ishmael in their journey, but he's not the promised one. He's not the one that God would give them. But God eventually does come good on that promise. You remember what the promise was? It was a it was a promise to to give them descendants as no, as numerous as the sand on the seashore, and to give them a land, everything that makes a nation, and. Uh, the, God had given him Isaac eventually. Last week we looked at Genesis 22, and God asked for the ultimate sacrifice, for him to sacrifice his one and his only son to see if he trusted him with the provision that God had made. And just in the nick of time, God provides a ram. And we said that points us to Jesus, showing how God provides just in the nick of time for everything that we need. And then we get to this point in Genesis 23, where it's the end of... Sarah's journey in the faith. She's 127, Abraham's 137. She had been in wandering in the wilderness of the promised land that wasn't yet theirs for 62 years. Half of her life, homeless, sojourner, nomad, wandering with the promise of God. And that's where we pick up this story today. They live in these tents of the wilderness with no land to their name. But one thing they know is true is that it's more home than Ur ever was for them. And you know why? Because home is more about a person than a place. Let me say that one more time. Home is more about a person than a place. That's why when we think about the journey of God's people and their relationship with them, Genesis chapters 1 and specifically chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 describe what it's like to be home, to really be home, to be home with the Lord, to converse with the Lord as one converses with a friend, to be wholly provided for, to live in a society, in a garden that is void of sin. There's no sin to be found. There's only fellowship and joy and grace and love, all of the attributes of God. They're on display. And yet when sin enters the world, what is the thing that is, that is severed? It's the presence of God. So they cast them out of, the, out of the garden, out of the presence of God. And I would argue that Genesis 3, I don't know, around verse 10 or 12, through, through the book of Revelation are about this journey of exile, this journey of sojourning, this journey of longing for and looking for home. And here's the thing, you and I each have our own journeys of how we look for home. You know, the the place of our deepest rest and our deepest joy. And we get these glimpses of home on this earth, but it's always riddled with the presence of sin, isn't it? And then we have this idolatry that we struggle with where we try to make... We try to make home the things that we, the the money that we make and the places that we live, and it always is just absent of the joy and the fullness that God has promised us. But because of God's Spirit, the Spirit that He left for us to enjoy as Christians when Jesus ascended to heaven, we have this Helper that's with us. He's a guarantee, He's a deposit the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us, Emmanuel, God with us, that gives us these glimpses and these foretastes of home as we journey in, in this exiled land, even though it's never what we hope for it to be. I think this is what's going on in Abraham's story. When you think about the, the parable of the prodigal sons, because both of them are prodigals to start with, right? In Luke chapter 15, it's a story of two sons who think differently about home in two different ways, right? One son is the younger son. He, he, uh, he, he, uh, let's start with the older son, actually. The older son physically stays at home with his father the whole time, yet spiritually he is far from the father's heart. The younger son physically takes his inheritance and squanders it in reckless living. But when he's in the wilderness of his own exile... He remembers the only thing that can bring him home, the Father's heart. And so he returns home. This is what's true for us, church. I don't know what you're carrying into this room today. I don't know how you're living and wandering in the wilderness of this exile journey that we call the Christian life. But I want to invite you to experience more of God's presence through the darkness and through the pain and through the mourning and through the grief, through the joys and through the happiness, to see that all along, God has known us and God has been with us. So here's our big idea for today. God's presence in our exile clarifies the home that we yearn for. I've got two points that I want to make about this. The first one is this, just to let you know where I'm going. First point is the exile of suffering. God's presence in suffering helps us live even when a part of us has died. Number two. God's presence uh, in the exile from home, We we can sojourn, we can live on this journey that we're on in the wilderness, in this passing world because of our eternal home. So let's dig into that first point together, the exile of suffering, which is God's presence in suffering that helps us live, helps us remember life even when death is right in front of us. Let me remind you of the first three verses that I think are the point of Genesis 23. It's the way Genesis 23 ends as well. It's about grief. It's about mourning. It's about the pain of life in this world. It says this, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of her life. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, which is Hebron. She died in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up before his dead. And he began to speak with the Hittites. You see, Abraham's journey, his marriage, it it wasn't just about shared experiences. It wasn't just about companionship. It wasn't just about intimacy. It was about God starting and finishing the spiritual work of bringing his heart to life in the context of a covenantal marriage. That's what marriage is about. You know that, right? Marriage is about Jesus. It's not about one another. It's about Jesus finishing his work in us on the journey of faith. And it's been been God's way for for Abraham to to carry him along. And I want to invite you to feel this moment with him this morning. Because Isaac is in his late 30s without a wife. Really uncommon for this, this day and age. Um, Abraham's 137, like I said, Sarah's 127 when she goes to be with the Lord. And Abraham goes in to mourn over his deceased wife. And he considers it all. And it leads him to weep. It leads him to mourn. We don't know how long this was, but I can bet it wasn't just two minutes, right? He weeps. He's in this moment. There's been this whole journey of 110 to 112 likely years of married life together. Where they've, where they've found faith, they've found God, and he's feeling what you and I feel in this world often, loss. Now, it just doesn't have to be death that makes you feel loss. Loss is when you, when you feel like the enemy is just chiseling away at the hope that you have. Does anyone ever feel that? Of course you do. It's a, sometimes it's a constant drip, Sometimes it comes in a wave that just seems to overwhelm you, like the psalmist says. The breakers and waves just wash over you. It comes in different ways. But one thing's for sure. If you don't have a theology of mourning and grief and suffering before it hits you, it will overwhelm you. And it will tempt you to believe that God is not near God had worked in Abraham's life in such a way that this wasn't the case for him. They'd been from Ur to Egypt and everywhere in between. They talked with God. They walked with God. They had dinner with God. And they laughed at God in mockery, right? They had experienced all of life with their Lord. One of the hardest things to do is to be confronted by death, to be confronted by loss. It's never normal And it's rarely expected, and even when it's expected, it still is overwhelming at times. I have found in my own formation as a follower of Jesus that every time I'm confronted with death, that I gain a clarity on what matters most in my life. What matters most in those moments, because you see what life is all about in those moments with a clarity and a degree that you forget about when you're in the grind of the normal routine. One of the opportunities I'm afforded as a pastor is to sit with people in some of their most joyous and happiest occasions and also the worst days of their life. When I was 22, weddings and funerals is what I'm referring to. Um, When I was 22, I had my first of one of those opportunities as a young whippersnapper of a pastor. And and I had this 15-year-old girl in my youth group Uh, whose father had passed away because he drank himself to death. And uh, being as she was the only believer in the family, she asked if I would drive to Kentucky and officiate her father's funeral. And so Megan and I, and I think Tatum at the time, went down and, not knowing how to do this, how to weep and grieve, preached the gospel to an absolutely hopeless room. And it was tough. God knit that relationship together with that young lady between Megan and, and I for years to come to the day that, um, that she decided to get married. And she asked me to officiate her wedding. And that day in Indianapolis, right on the square in downtown, uh, she walked down the aisle. Craig and I were standing up on the, in the front uh, But it wasn't her father that walked her down the aisle. It was her mother. And and as they got down to me, I just began to weep. And I literally said, they weren't expecting this. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. I often think back about the first funeral and the first wedding that I ever did. And I ask God, why was it that sequence why, why did it happen that way in my formation as a pastor? And one of the things that I've come to spiritually realize is this, is that as Christians, the funeral happens before the wedding. And what I mean by that is, is that we get the bad news before we get the good news as Christians. And the bad news is this, is that we are so wretched that God had to send his son to die for us. That's That's the truth. And if you don't believe that about yourself, the good news will never be good to you. It'll never be a joy to worship and sing about the glory of God's Son and what He's done for us. But the reality is, is when you hear the good news, it makes all the difference when you know that you deserve the bad news. As Christians, we get the funeral before we get the wedding. How have you grieved in recent years? Are you in a place where you're afraid to verbalize or acknowledge the pain of loss in your life? It could be the slow drip of chiseling away at your hope through strained relationships, disappointments, and terrible circumstances, or it could be enormous waves that overwhelm you. It doesn't matter what it's been like for you, all of those things will come to you as a Christian at some point. Death hits us all. And when it does, the question is, how do you respond? I think there's always two ditches, right? There's not three. Brandon tried to make three and that didn't work out. (laughs) But the ditch over here for us as we think about grief is that we just stuff it and we say, you know, the pain isn't really that bad. Other people have it worse. Or we go on this side where we lose hope in the midst of the grief, that it overwhelms us to such a degree that we can't see life through it anymore. But as you know, the gospel calls us to something in the middle. But it's this beautiful thing where, where, we're, where we get to actually grieve more deeply as Christians than anyone on the face of the planet because we have the permission to feel because of the hope that we're promised in the resurrection. Amen? We can grieve deeper than anyone. We can sit in the pain longer than anyone we can mourn with those who mourn and weep with those who weep because we know what it's like to be hopeless we know what it's like we know what the bad news is all about but the trademark of the christian faith is this is that the pain and the mourning and the loss doesn't define us even though a part of us when we experience this will die And to be honest with you, it will not be resurrected until Jesus resurrects it. I think we can kid around and say life will be the same, but what we trust is that God will bring new life in the place of the lost. Not that he'd replace the lost, because we know he'll do that in eternity, but to spring forth new life from those limbs that have been pruned and chopped away in our stories. I had the opportunity to go to a funeral of a guy that had been visiting our church he was becoming a really quick friend of mine, really unexpected death last fall. And, and uh, I was so moved by the homily, and I've never done this before. I started taking notes at the funeral outside in the sun. And, and the pastor was talking about the life of Dave. And he, he, said, he said, here's the thing. You know, this is a really tough one. This, is, this guy was a pastor, he was a great friend of mine. He says, here's the beauty about his life is that he died before he died. And because he died before he died, he lived before he lived. And what he meant by that was was that, that the old Dave had died a long time ago. And Christ in Dave is what we experienced, is what we loved about Dave, was Jesus Christ alive in him. And that's the hope of the resurrection, that when you die before you die, you get to live before you live. And when you live before you live, you bless the world with Jesus instead of your flesh. And that's the remarkable thing about what I sense happening with Abraham here. We have an opportunity as Christians to grieve in a unique way. Paul reminds us of it in 1 Thessalonians chapter four. He says this, he says there's a way to grieve in an uninformed way, in a way that's not godly. And it's this, it's to grieve as others do who have no hope. To grieve as others do who have no hope. So what's it look like to grieve with hope? To grieve with hope means that you can see the life through the death, even though it's dark. That you can lean into the fact that the death is real and it's scary and it's awful, but it's not the end. And if if you want to be around someone that is a, a force of good for the kingdom of God in this world. It's someone who's been confronted by death and seen life through it. See, most, most Christians kind of kid around with death. They try to, to kind of experience life in their own unique ways and avoid death with everything that they are. I mean, think about all of the ways that we as, a, as, a, as, a, as, as humanity try to avoid death. Think about all of the rhythms in your life that you have in place that, that try to help you avoid death. It's everything from your diet, to your exercise, to your safety belt. I mean, and that does good in Atlanta, you know? So there's all of these rhythms, all of these things that we practice every single day where we try to avoid death and it finds us all. And you know what we find as Christians when death finds us is that there's Jesus. There's Jesus in our midst. So Abraham experiences this deep grief this morning. I'm reminded of of Jesus in uh, Luke chapter 11, where he is at a what looks like to be a funeral service with his one of his good friends Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha and they want Jesus to do something about the pain and Jesus actually will in this instance he'll resurrect Lazarus from the dead but what does he do before that shortest verse in the bible Jesus wept why did Jesus weep when he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead Jesus knows what the pain of death is like. He wants us to know that. He wants us to know And and commentators say, you know, we don't know how long that was. That's a short verse, but it wasn't a short morning, time of mourning. It was a long extended time. But the thing we see about Abraham's life is this. Verse 3, Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, he he begins to, to kind of move on here, See, Solomon says that there's a season and a time for everything. Ecclesiastes chapter three there's a time to weep and there's a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn, there's a time to dance, there's a time to break down and a time to build up. It was the time for Abraham to rise up from his mourning. That part of his life would not be resurrected into eternity, but he could still move forward because of the hope of resurrection. And he trusted that even though a part of his life would always be missing, that the Lord is in the business of bringing new life in the presence of death. This is why you you turn a few chapters, a couple chapters over to Genesis chapter 25, verses 1 and 2. And what do you notice about Abraham's life? He gets remarried. He remarries a lady and actually has more children with her than he did with, uh, with Sarah, his six boys. There's not a lot of detail about that. But what, we, what I want you to see in that, this is a really practical thing. And, and Paul reiterates this in the book of Romans and 1 Corinthians, that there's, there's permission to remarry for a widow or a widower here. It's not prescription, but there's permission. There's, there's permission to experience new life as a, as a single widower or widow. There's permission to experience new life in a marriage. There's permission here. Abraham knows a new mate isn't going to bring back what's missing. But the hope for new life is on the table because of God's relationship with him. My question to you as we consider this and kind of move on here is, how have you grieved and mourned recently? How have you handled loss? Because there's a way to do it that is filled with hope, and there's a way to do it that the world does it. There's a way to medicate it and to set it aside and to suppress it. And to do that is to do yourselves a tremendous disservice. One where you don't allow yourself to feel and experience the hope of the gospel that's constantly bearing fruit and growing, as Colossians 1 says. That's what the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, is that it's always giving more life. It's always producing more fruit in believers, even through the pruning of our lives. In those situations for you, has the Lord given hope to you as you consider the promise beyond the loss? Because that's the remarkable thing about the life of a Christian. You read any Christian biography, you see that there's life beyond the loss. For you, I want you to know that this morning. Some of you haven't experienced much loss in your life. It's been the chiseling way, slow drip. Some of you have experienced tremendous loss in your lives. It doesn't matter where you're at on that spectrum. The question is, is does your faith allow you to see life beyond the loss? Abraham's did. We're going, let's go to this land deal now. This is interesting, right? The exile from home. Here's what we see, is that we can sojourn hopefully in this passing world because of our eternal home. This, the rest of this chapter just count, sounds kind of strange to us. Uh, how does Abraham go from grieving to a real estate deal? I think there's a lot of stuff going on here. And I really think it's about eternity more than it is a plot of land for 400 shekels of silver, okay? I think, I think it's about this promise that God's given to him. Um, and, and one of the things that we, we could notice here too is that in this day, um, I, well, I could ask you, do you know where you want to be buried when you die? And some of you would say yes, or I want to be cremated. Most of you would say no, I have no idea. And um, in Abraham's day, the answer would have been obvious. You go back home to be buried. That's where you go. You go back, where's home for them? The land of Ur, right? They would go back home. But the, the, the problem is, is that whenever you've been made alive by God in the promised land, Ur's not home anymore. Because remember, it's a person... It's, it's, a person that makes a, a, it's a person that makes a home, not a place, right? And so uh, his home was with God. And so what we see Abraham doing here is, uh, is negotiating a piece of property. And he's negotiating it in an interesting way that, you know, uh, he wants this specific piece of property, but he wants it, as, and this is the key word, as a possession, because the promise to him in uh, Genesis twelve and fifteen that's laid out is that his descendants would be as numerous as the sand on the seashores, and he would also have land as his possession. Abraham is walking in faith here to possess a part of what would eventually become the promised land that would be a gift to he and his descendants from the hand of God. He's making he's he's planting a flag in the middle of enemy territory, saying. This is ours. I believe the Lord. And that's why he pays full price for it. We could get into all the commentary of what do the numbers mean. I think that would lead us astray, to be honest with you, this morning. The, the, the big thing is, is that the promise that Abraham is clinging on to is, is more than just this physical land. It's this spiritual promise that God has made to him. Um, to be his God, to for God to be his God and and for Abraham and his descendants to be his people. That was really what it was about. So we read in Genesis 23, 4, where Abraham says this. He says, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place. So Abraham's acknowledging that this place isn't home. It's not home. But God brought him here and promised him this land, and he's setting in motion a step of faith for receiving this land. And it boils down to this: they offer to give it to him, but he wants to purchase it so that he can own it forever. And and why does he want to own it as a possession? He wants to own it as a possession, um, so that so that in the in the in, throughout the the different ways that the the kingdoms change and things like this, that one that one thing can be remain certain. It's this little piece of property here, this this cave at Macpila that Sarah would be the first to be buried, and then Abraham, and then Isaac and Rebekah, and then Jacob, they would all be buried really in, the, in the, the middle of kind of the wilderness, right? This place that God had promised them. You know, you know the interesting thing is, is all of them would be buried there without owning the land that God promised to them. They would all die in faith looking forward to what God promised them without receiving it yet. The point of this here is a, is a reality that you and I experience. It's this, is that what do we do when we, when we have God's promise, but not all of God's promise? We, we've said this before, that we, we live in between the already and the not yet. So for us as Christians, we've been given Jesus, we've been justified by faith, we're being sanctified, we'll be carried on to completion, but we still live in the midst of this valley of the shadow of death with life inside of us. And we long for the day that God will make all things new. We live in between the Genesis 3 fall and the Revelation 21 new creation that God has promised us. And how do we live faithfully and not be overwhelmed in the midst of that? How do we live as God's children when we're not yet home? How do we do that? How do we face all of the loss, all of the disappointments of the things that we try to make home, these these houses and careers and lives we try to make for ourselves only to realize that's not home either? We live faithfully in the midst of that. I think the key for us is Romans 11, verses 8 through 10. I think, I'm sorry, not Romans, Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 10. I think the writer of the Hebrews helps us interpret Genesis 23 in a profound way for us. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him, of the same promise. Here's the key. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. When Abraham bought that piece of property, he was saying, I'm looking for heaven. I'm looking for eternity with you. I'm looking for the the fellowship that that, that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden. I'm looking forward to that that new kingdom that you're going to establish. Abraham wasn't looking for Canaan. He was looking for heaven. I think so many times our vision of God's blessing and his covenantal promises toward us get so microscopic that we fail to realize that the best that we'll ever get this side of eternity is like a foretaste of heaven. It's like an appetizer. I love appetizers, but they're not going to fill me up, right? They give you a taste. The pain we experience in this world, likewise, will not even come close to what we deserve. Consider that. But on the flip side of that, the joy that we will enjoy with God forever in eternity does, on this earth will not even scratch the surface of what we have prepared for us. The truth is that the only thing that can motivate us to live faithfully in this world is because we're seeing through our best and our worst moments looking toward the Heavenly Father with that heavenly city among our heavenly family. Listen to the rest of what the writer of Hebrews says verses 13 through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. This is why death, this verse right here, is why death and loss is so centering for your faith. Because it reminds us that we're not home, church. Church. It reminds us that we are, at best, strangers and exiles on this earth. He says, for people who speak, thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. He's describing all of humanity. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But no, he bought land in Hebron, didn't he? Verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Friend, do you seek that city through the way that you live your life? Do you seek that city through the way that you handle loss? The way you experience the friendship Of God. The word is reminding us that we are living as exiles, having already received the blessing of salvation, but not the fullness of it yet. And it reminds us as we walk throughout this earth that we're not home yet because our Father's house, as John 14 says, has many rooms and not everyone's responded to the invitation yet. God's patience is what we're enjoying. And it's riddled with pain for us. It's riddled with loss. But the invite list is still being extended to the world. But by faith, God grants us opportunities to experience as a foretaste the home he's created for us in heaven. And that's why these little moments that we have in fellowship and our MC around the table together, these little moments that we have in the the, the most joyous births and the most painful deaths remind us of eternity. They show us how good it could be. And they give, us, they give us endurance even in the middle of the pain. I have a question for you as we close out here. What's the first thing Jesus is going to do when we get into eternity? What's the first thing? Let's read Revelation 21 together. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. What's he describing right there? Home. It's a homecoming, right? It's home because Jesus is there, and his people are there. But what's the first thing he's going to do, church? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There should be no more mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed. Every single tear that you have ever cried in your life, Jesus Christ is going to personally wipe off of your face, church. The ones in the silence of your car or your closet, the ones that you you can't, you can't even bear, the ones you cried today, He knows you through the tears. And that's because he's made a home for you in eternity. And everything that you experience that's not home on this earth evokes those tears because of the pain. And the, the invitation for us, because as the writer of Ecclesiastes said, it's because he's put eternity in our, in our heart. The invitation for us is to seek the life through the pain and death. And as we do that, church, God is building his kingdom. We are the only people, the church, on the face of the planet that can grieve so deeply, yet have so much hope. How are you grieving today, friend? How are you grieving? And what would a watching world, longing for home, see through your grief? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you... um, that Abraham was longing for heaven while he was in Canaan. Father, would you teach our hearts to long for home in such a way that we feel deeply about the pain in this world, but we don't grieve as those who don't have hope. Because we have a hope that is given to us through endurance and through suffering, God. It's a hope that comes through death, not a hope that comes from avoiding death. Father, I pray that our church, our people, would be people who die before they die so that they can live before they live. And when people look back and they eulogize over our lives, they'll say, what I appreciated and loved about he or she was Christ in him, Christ in her. Lord, help us to live in such a way that our gaze is fixed on eternity, making us the most present people on this earth imaginable. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.